We noted last Sunday how there were three tangible indicators of the spirit-filled church. We would just call them evidence of a spirit-filled church. And because the church isn't a building, but it's rather a group of people, we also noted how these same three characteristics we find prevalent in a spirit-filled church also is prevalent and should be as evidenced in our own lives. These three things, very simply, to recap, is that this church, filled with the Spirit of God, spoke the truth of God's Word with boldness. With boldness. Secondly, a Spirit-filled church, and thus the individual, should be unified. We should be known by our love for one another. We should be unified for our love for Jesus, our love for each other. But a Spirit-filled church will also be filled with a group of generous people. Now, in regards to this topic of generosity, Luke tells us at the end of chapter 4 that their generosity manifested in that people were freely selling their possessions. No coercion to this. They were doing it of their own good, goodwill, good nature. They were bringing the proceeds to the apostles so that the apostles could distribute the proceeds to the people accordingly, the resources appropriately. And the result, we're told, of this particular model, of this generosity, this communism, this manifestation of the Holy Spirit, is that they were all miserable and everyone lacked. No, we're told that instead great grace, great grace was upon them all, and not anyone among them lacked. Now, Luke will present for us at the end of chapter 4 a practical example of this spirit-filled life. Verse 36, and Hoseis, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, since Barnabas is mentioned some 25 times in the book of Acts, and then another five times in the epistles, it would be important for us, just as we're working our way through this book, because this is the first time he's mentioned, to pause and maybe develop a bit of a character profile from these particular verses. First, and it seems obvious, but we should state it, Barnabas was Hebrew. His original name, his birth name, was Hoseis, meaning exalted one. And many scholars believe that this was probably a shortened, abbreviated uh, form of the common Hebrew name, Joseph. Barnabas was a Levite. So in addition to being Hebrew, we know specifically the tribe that he was from. He was from the Levitical tribe, the priestly tribe of Israel. Barnabas was from Cyprus, which probably indicated that at some point his family had been dispersed out of Israel. He was part of the dispensation of Israel, and therefore, though a Levite, a Hebrew, wasn't actually a practicing uh, priest. Barnabas was a follower of Jesus. We have no idea when Barnabas gave his life to the Lord, when he became a convert, when he started following Jesus. There's reason, though, to believe that his conversion, not only because it's here at the end of chapter 4, but, but we have reason to believe that it was very early on. Some have speculated because he's from Cyprus, as a Hebrew, as one of the tribe uh, of, of, of the Levitical order, he came to Jerusalem for maybe Passover, he came uh, as 
the pilgrims were required to do, possibly for the Feast of First Fruits, which would have placed him at the temple during the day of Pentecost to see the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe he was there to see uh, Jesus in the commotion, his trial, his arrest, his execution, the incredible works that happened after that. And that's when he became a follower of Jesus. Maybe it was as a result of Pentecost. We also know that Barnabas was cousins with Mark, the gospel writer. Mark's mother, Mary, we know was an early disciple of Jesus. Legend has it that it was in her home that Jesus had the Last Supper and that it was in her home that the early church would meet. So Mary, Mark's mother, was a early convert of Jesus, which somewhat indicates maybe Barnabas could have been a follower of Jesus before Passover, dating him earlier. There's an old legend that his brother, happened to be one of the 70 disciples that traveled with Jesus, but that's nothing but hearsay. What we know at this point is that he loves Jesus and he's following Jesus. You should also note that, well, in context, Barnabas generously supported the church. It's interesting, Luke points out that Barnabas, having land, sold it. The notable scholar, Sandy Adams, I'm going to say that just in case he actually listens to this, That's my father, for those of you who don't know. Observed that the Old Testament law prohibited the tribe of Levi from owning land. Their priority was the temple service. But apparently, the law had been unable to tame the heart of Barnabas. Barnabas insisted on ownership. But what the law had failed to do, the love of Jesus had accomplished. When Jesus filled his heart, the contents of his wallet were not as important. Here Barnabas bows to the apostles' feet, but later he'll become one. I like that. He generously supported the church, but this was a manifestation of his relationship with Jesus. The sixth thing you should note in this character profile is that Barnabas had a godly reputation. And note, his reputation came way before this generous act. So it's not as though this generous act had made him Uh, popular among the apostles or had brought him to some form of notoriety. He was known, he had a reputation before this moment at all. Luke tells us they gave him the nickname Barnabas, which in the Aramaic meant son of rest. Now, in order for us to understand how son of rest would apply to Barnabas, Luke takes this a step further in the passage by translating it for us, by saying that Barnabas as we might know to be son of rest, really means son of encouragement. In the Greek, the word encouragement is actually a noun, parakletus, which is a derivative of the verb parakleo. Parakleo, as a verb, it was a compound word. Para, meaning by the side, and kaleo, meaning to call. Parakleo literally means a calling to one's aid. The King James Version translates parakalesis, or the word we find encouragement, as consolation. We understand it to mean encouragement, comfort, refreshing, even help. The phrase, son of encouragement, it indicates that the nickname Barnabas was used by the apostles to describe him literally as being the offspring of the one who encourages. This is what son of encouragement literally means. In the Greek... The one who parakaleo, or the one who encourages, would have been the parakaletos, or literally the one who comforts and helps. Now, this all has a purpose. Parakaletos, the one who encourages. 
This is significant because in John 14, verse 26, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit using an interesting word. He refers to the Holy Spirit as saying that the Spirit will be the helper, the helper sent by God. This word, the helper, is literally parakletos. It's a reference, a direct reference to the Spirit, which means that when they called him Barnabas, and I love this, when they called him Barnabas, they were literally saying, not that he was the son of encouragement, that he was just a really uplifting kind of guy, though he was, I'm sure, but more specifically, that he was the son of the encourager or the Holy Spirit. You see, the apostles, and calling him Barnabas, what they're saying is they're saying that the very nature of this man embodied that of the Holy Spirit, that the man oozed the Spirit of God. I love this about Barnabas, a man filled with the Spirit to the point that they nickname him the offspring of the Spirit because his life so embodied it, which tells us, seventhly, that Barnabas epitomized the person of the Holy Spirit. Though Barnabas will become a prominent character in the book of Acts. He'll play an instrumental role in the life of who we'll know to be the Apostle Paul. He'll be a missionary, accompanying Paul on the first missionary journey, but embarking with Mark on many to follow. He's an incredible character, a cool guy, but Luke presents him to us, to his audience, first and foremost, not as a missionary, not as a friend. He presents to us Barnabas as an example of the very spirit-filled life we've been discussing. Chapter 5, verse 1, but. Now pause. As Luke continues his narrative, and, and in case you're unaware, the chapter and verse breaks were not in the original text. They were added later for our benefit of being able to reference and find specific passages. So they were never there. So as Luke is writing, it's one continuous story. There's not a chapter break of any kind. And so he's writing about the spirit-filled church. He's presenting this example of Barnabas who epitomized the spirit-filled life. And then he says, but this conjunction is used by our author to now set up a contrast. He's going to contrast the spirit-filled Barnabas with a new set of characters he's about to introduce into chapter 5. So let's continue. A certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now Luke begins by introducing us to this character. This, this, this couple. You have Ananias. Ananias is the Hebrew word meaning God is gracious. And his wife is Sapphira, which is an Aramaic word meaning beautiful. And what a match! Grace and beauty? That's a wonderful combination for any couple. A man filled with grace and a woman that scores a 10. I like it. Now Luke tells us you have this couple, Ananias, Sapphira, and they sold a possession. We'll come to find in a few verses that this possession was actually a tract of land. In the context of the communism that existed within the church and the example of this generosity being manifested through the life of Barnabas, it would seem that Ananias and Sapphira, they sold this possession with the intent of giving the full proceeds to the church in much the same way that Barnabas just had. This word proceeds literally means the full sell price. And we mentioned it last week that no one told them they had to do this. There was no coercion. There was no guilt trip. They're selling this land 
out of a freedom of choice. There's no pressure. They're not trying to buy favors. This should have been an easy, natural manifestation of the Spirit. And he continues by telling us that after they sold this possession, that Ananias and Sapphira decided that they were going to only give part of the proceeds to the church and not actually the full sale price. Now, most people, most Bible scholars, when talking about this, make sure that you understand that this was not the problem. That the fact that they sold this land and then decided to keep back part of it, that this was their free choice, there was no coercion. This, at this point, if the story had just progressed a different direction, they're not an heir. I totally disagree. Totally disagree with that assumption because the text tells us something different. The phrase, kept back, which is how Luke's describing the activity, is the Greek word that means literally to misappropriate or to purloin, to embezzle. In Titus chapter 2, verse 10, the same word is used, it's translated as pilfering, or to steal. You see, the idea that Luke is presenting here is that Ananias and Sapphira had given a possession to God. They had given this land, and they had come to this realization, this conclusion, God, this land's yours, now, the church doesn't have practical value or, or use for the land, so the land's already yours. We'll sell it, give the full proceeds to you. That's what the text is telling us. But when the land ended up selling for, my goodness, a lot more than maybe they thought, which is how God often works, we're giving something to God, and God blesses it abundantly. He's looking for conduits. So they're like, this land, we're giving it to the church. God, it's your land. They sell it, put the for sale sign. Their realtor calls back like, you'll never believe someone's willing to fork out twice as much. And they're like, whoa. Well, we're going to keep back some of that. Now, they had given it all to God to start with. The possession was already God. Now all they're doing is entrusting the care, the stewardship of this gift. When more money's given as a result, they're keeping it. You don't understand the problem here. They're keeping it. Literally, the text says that they stole it, that they misappropriated it. Though the text doesn't tell us specifically, it is also implied from the context of the remainder of the passage, of the story, that Ananias, in, in cahoots with Sapphira, brought now a certain part of the proceeds to give to the apostles under the false pretense that they were giving the whole in the way that Barnabas had. So their mistakes are twofold. They gave the land. Whatever, whatever it sells for God, it's yours. It's sold for more. And they're like, ugh, we kind of made that promise. Now we're going to keep it. So they kept back part of it. Mistake number one. Mistake number two is then when they go to the apostles, they're presenting this, this gift as if it were all of it. So there are two fundamental mistakes that this couple is making and handling the particular situation. Now Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your control? Have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. But Peter. In this instance, you have to kind of ask yourself, how did Peter know? Like, how did he know? I mean, the, the deed was hatched in secrecy. The only two people that knew the deed was being done was Ananias and Sapphira. Was maybe Peter's wife their realtor? 
I don't think so. Had word circulated at, wow, you'll never believe what the house down the street sold for. Fantastic. That means my property value just increased. No, I don't think that was it at all. So now how did Peter know? I think we see another manifestation of the Holy Spirit working in and through the life of Peter. And that would be what the Bible describes as a gift of knowledge, of just supernatural intuition. Ananias comes and he's bringing this gift. And in that moment, the Spirit spoke to Peter. Something's fishy here. Something's not right here. So we have a gift of knowledge that transitions to a word of knowledge. Because now Peter speaks this into the life of Ananias. Now, I need to point out one of the obvious lessons that's presented here. And that is the crime of sin committed in secret. You know, often sins that are done in secret, committed in secret, lull us into a false sense that no one knows. Maybe it's just me and my computer screen. Or maybe it's just my wife and I. Maybe it's just me that I'm embezzling money through the company or I'm doing this and we think we're getting away with it. We think there's no way. I've covered my tracks. I'm pretty smart. No way anyone would know. And maybe it's true that there is no way for anyone to know. Ironically, God sees all, which means that there is one person who knows other than you, and that's God. And what should be scary for all of us is that this God who sees all and knows sometimes supernaturally speaks to other people in our lives saying, they don't want you to know. But this is what's really going on. Be careful of sin in secret. Because you never know when you might get a knock on your front door and it's a brother in the Lord who comes and he sits down at your kitchen table and he says, you know, was praying, and the Lord spoke to me this morning. Why are you having an affair? And you're like, how do you know that? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. It's God. And I also saw you at a motel. No. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit can speak. So, hey, if you have sin that you think you're getting away with because you're doing it in secret, hey, you should pause in trepidation and fear under the reality that all sin done in secret will come to the light. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul tells us, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come before the Lord. I, I want to also make another observation. Ananias thought he got away with it. He thought he had done this in, in secret. There was no way anyone would know. Peter catches him. The other thing that should be pointed out, because some people will criticize Peter here. Like, come on, Peter, is that really brotherly love? I mean, we were just talking about unity. We were talking about this, this koinonia within the fellowship. And here you are, this guy's bringing his gift. You're given this word of knowledge, but why not kind of like pull Ananias aside? Like, hey, can we meet after church? Would you mind going to Waffle House and grabbing a cup of coffee? Um, no, like Peter in front of everyone. As the gift is leaving his hands, he's like, boom. Like, you should understand, and please note this about God, and even in some regards to the way that the church should function, sins that are committed, in, that are done in secret, that are kept in secret, but come to the light, often demand a private rebuke. Like, 
It's private. It should remain private. The word of God, the truth of God should be spoken into the person's life, but it should remain private. However, what sets Ananias' deed here apart from that is that his sin was blatant, it was in the open, and it was done in public. And thus Peter senses no responsibility to pull him aside privately, but to make sure you're going to sin in public, and I'm going to address it in public. And there are some times that sins are committed and that I have to stand here from this pulpit and let you know what's going on with a certain individual. Now, we don't do that with everyone, but I've seen in instances where a pastor's fallen into sin, and the senior pastor has to get up and explain to the people why so-and-so is no longer on staff. It's awkward, but it's the way it has to happen because of the reputation that we're supposed to be maintaining. Now, Peter begins. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now, I'm reading this into it, but I really sense a tenderness, a sensitivity to Peter. I don't think he's yelling at him. I don't think we're like doom and gloom and thunder. Get right or get left, turn or burn. Like, I mean, I think that there's a, a real sensitivity and, and, a, and a tenderness to what he's saying. As I read it, like, why, why? Anytime you start with a question, why? I know what you're doing. Why are you doing it? It's kind of what he's saying. And it's clear right from the beginning that Peter is making, uh, he's making the leap that the offense was not that Ananias had kept back part of the land. It's a manifestation of something deeper. It's the fact that he presented the gift under false pretense, and therefore Peter accuses him of now lying to the Holy Spirit. He'll later say, you're lying not to men, but to God, which is an awesome reference, by the way, of the deity, the Godhead of the Holy Spirit. You're lying to the Holy Spirit, and then at the end, you're lying to God. God, the Holy Spirit, synonymous. And in the original language, it indicates that he's lying, not through the words that are coming out of his mouth, but through a deliberate falsehood that's presented through his actions. In essence, we would say that Ananias, his crime was one of hypocrisy. That his actions were presenting a fake facade. That he was masquerading as if he were someone he really wasn't. He was playing a game. He was pretending. He was faking. And in doing so, deceiving others. And what's worse, this hypocritical deed was done because Ananias, look, he had allowed Satan to fill his heart. You see, the passion behind this act of generosity was not Christ. It wasn't the church. It wasn't to take care of other people. His desire was to bring attention and glory to himself. And Peter continues, after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Though Satan was the motivation, Peter isn't letting Ananias off the hook, is he? Satan put this thing in your heart. But even after you were in the process, it was in your control. But this was something that you conceived, that you did deliberately. Please note that hypocrisy in the life of an individual, it might be a sin that's witnessed by all men. But this passage makes it clear that hypocrisy at its core is a sin that's committed against God. 
And it should also be pointed out that as Peter is doing this, I still sense that there's a sensitivity to the way he's going about it. And yet, look at the result. Verse 5, so Ananias, he heard these words, he fell down, and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard these things. I can imagine so. And the young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Which might, Kyle, be a new role we need to have for our ushers. I think that the young men should be prepared for that. We'll just bury you out back. (laughs) Upon hearing these words, Ananias croaks. Like the Greek word for fell down. It literally means to descend from a position of being upwards to now being in a position of being down for the count. It's like he heard the words and caught a left hook, and he's out cold. And then to be clear that he's dead, Dr. Luke, our author, said that he breathed his last, which was a medical term to declare that the breath of life had actually departed from the body. Now, contrary to popular understanding of this passage, Peter, I don't know if you saw this, I didn't, but it's not as though that he pronounced some voodoo death sentence on Ananias. Like, as this whole scene's unfolding, all Peter did was confront him on his sin, right? Why are you doing this? Why have you done this? Why did you conceive this? And then, as Ananias is hearing those words... He's struck and he falls down dead. I think Peter's just as shocked and freaked out as everybody else. This is actually being slain in the spirit, folks. Which means I don't want to go to a church that is slaying people in the spirit. Well, it was three hours later that when his wife came in, not knowing what happened, which is kind of a miracle in and of itself. Like, you know Twitter doesn't exist at this point in history because, like, if you're at church and, boom, someone's, like, coming up to take communion and, boom, they're down for the count. Like, that's blowing up Twitter. Like, the way that gossip works in a church of 10,000 people, the fact that three hours later this woman still had no idea what had happened is really maybe no one left. I mean, really at that point. I mean, that might be the only explanation. Someone dies and no one's like, I'm not moving. Like, I got to process this. Peter, so Sapphira comes in, and he says, tell me, you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out. And immediately she, she fell down at his feet, breathed her last, The young men, the ushers, came in, found her dead, carried her out. And I think it's kind of nice that they buried her next to her husband. Now, though we know that Sapphira had been in cahoots with her husband, Ananias, and I'm sure that, that Peter, if he had been given this word of knowledge, is equally aware that she is a guilty party just like her husband. But even in knowing that, Peter does something I, I really appreciate. Even knowing that she's hatched this deed with her husband, that she's just as guilty, he gives her an opportunity to come clean, right? I mean, you see this. He asks her. Though the Bible exhorts wives to submit to their husbands, please note, ladies, 
that the idea of submission never applies to matters of direct and deliberate sin. If your husband is doing something immoral, you can rebel against him. You have biblical authority to do it. It's not as though Sapphira gets to heaven like, I was supposed to submit. It's Ananias' fault. It doesn't work. Like she's held accountable just as much as he is. And sadly, Sapphira not only maintains the same lie she had, con- she had concocted with her husband, but unlike her counterpart, she brazenly denies any improprieties. Because of her role in the scheme, the fact she's given an opportunity to repent, but she doesn't. She lies specifically. Well, she's experiencing the same judgment as her husband. How have you agreed to do this? She breathed her last. She fell down and breathed her last. And now, folks, this is where, to me, things get really complicated. I don't know if you're aware. This is probably one of the most complicated stories in all of Scripture, specifically the book of Acts, in general, maybe even the New Testament. And it's at this point in the story, like I'm tracking with it, kind of following, but now I'm kind of like, hmm. And I listen to a lot of different people provide a lot of different explanations, and we're going to try to unpack this in the most logically consistent way I know how. For you see, if the description of Ananias' death was all we were given, well, you might conclude that God didn't strike Ananias and that Peter didn't cast down some voodoo spell on him, but instead, he's there and he's so shocked that Peter's calling him out that the, 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 old, the old guy has a heart attack and he dies. Like, you could read into the passage, into the, the dealings with Ananias, that Peter's just laying it out and the old ticker skips a beat and he strokes out and he's dead. And that the whole thing can be described or defined through natural causes. However, the death of Sapphira presents a picture not of natural cause, but of actual divine judgment. If Peter had been surprised by the death of Ananias, he was so certain of Sapphira's impending death that he even predicted before she had died that the young men were coming to carry her body out just like they had her husband. You see, the reality that God judged this couple by striking them dead, as tough as it is to wrap your brain around, is unavoidable. Like you can't rationalize or excuse this away. And I listen to a lot of pastors that are just kind of walking right through the text and totally move on, and you're like, whoa, why aren't we addressing the fact that God just killed two people? Like literally killed them in the church. Like it's mind-blowing. You see, the majority of Bible teachers will present the story of Ananias and Sapphira and God's swift judgment as a warning of hypocrisy within the church. I've even heard a reputable commentator point out that this story is a perfect illustration of how God deals with people within the church much differently than he deals with people outside of the church. The basic with revelation comes greater responsibility theory. I've also heard other Bible teachers explain that the extreme way in which God dealt with Ananias and Sapphira is actually really consistent with the reality that when God begins a new work or introduces a new era, 
that he always goes to extremes to establish clear precedents, that the whole story, it's a precedent. These expositors like to point out that when the children of Israel entered the land of promise, experienced their first victory there at Jericho, but then suffered their first defeat because of the sin of Achan, that the death of this man, because of this sin, and his whole family was used by God to establish the precedent of the importance of the people of God obeying him and remaining pure. One commentator even states that when God launches a new movement, he uses a flurry of miracles to authenticate. In Acts, it was a rushing mighty wind, flames of fire, healing of the lame man. But then God deals harshly to preserve the work's integrity. This is the pattern in Acts. He wanted future generations of believers to understand the priority he places on purity and integrity because spiritual pride, deceit, and two-faced spirituality are sins that short-circuit God's work. And while I have the utmost respect for those that espouse both explanations, in light of the assumed belief that Ananias and Sapphira were Christians, I must be honest that neither elucidation as to why God would judge believers in such a harsh way makes sense to me. I don't buy it. I, I, to be very honest with you, kind of can't wrap my brain around it. Now, I completely agree that hypocrisy within the church cannot be tolerated for two reasons. It's destructive uh, purposes on the church at large and the fact that it deceives the individual so we're never dealing with issues. Hypocrisy is a bad thing to have in a church or to have in your own life. I'll also agree that God views the issues of obedience and his people being pure, that he views these things with extreme seriousness. But the notion that God would kill two believers who had been bought by the blood of Christ simply to establish a precedent for a new work, it doesn't sit well with the rest of Scripture. If Ananias and Sapphira were believers, as most people suppose, then weren't they living under grace and not the law? Which would completely distinguish them from Achan, who was under the law and not actually under grace. I mean, hadn't their sin, past, present, future, already experienced the judgment of God when God's wrath was poured out on Jesus? I mean, did Jesus really die on the cross to establish the precedent that if you sin, I might strike you down dead? I don't think so. If it's about precedent, I can see Peter dealing with all this, having these two people, encouraging them to repent. And if not, then enacting church discipline by kicking them out. Like that would be consistent with the storyline, not God striking them down. Don't get me wrong. I do believe that even the sins of believers bring with them serious consequences. But this was not natural consequences because of sin, was it? Like if he experiences the heart attack, like that's a natural byproduct of him being caught and he's experiencing this guilt and he dies. But this is God's direct intervening judgment. James Montgomery Boyce said, true Christians do not lose their salvation by sinning. The punishment of Ananias and Sapphira, though extreme, was for this life only. That's how one Bible commentator rationalizes it. And sure, I would agree 
that death in and of itself is not that much of a judgment for the Christian. As a matter of fact, we understand that death is not the end of anything, but the moment we leave behind the muck and the mire and are transformed into glory, could God, in striking Ananias and Sapphira dead, have simply been calling them home while also setting a precedent for the rest of the church? Maybe. But once again, this is not what the text seems to present. If they were believers, Ananias and Sapphira make a tragic mistake, but was the punishment worth or in connection to the crime itself? I mean, I can think of worse offenses than hypocrisy, right? How about pride, which is like one of the seven deadly sins? Like, really, is it consistent? And if it were, if hypocrisy demanded God's intervention in this way, then we're all screwed, by the way. Because at any moment in the church, you could be down for the count. So why don't we see that happening? If it's for these purposes. You see, I'm of the opinion that this passage becomes unnecessarily complicated when we automatically make the assumption or we assume that Ananias and Sapphira were actually believers. If you look back at the text, kind of go back, like look at it, just kind of scan through it. Not once in this passage is that ever mentioned, that they were believers, that they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, that they were Christians. You see, some will point to the fact that by contrasting Ananias and Sapphira with an obvious Christian, that being Barnabas, that Luke was indirectly establishing this connection. Proponents of this view also present the passage as contrasting two set of believers and the way that they give, one who gave genuinely, uh, genuinely, and the other who gave with, uh, with a disingenuous heart. And yet, I think it overlooks, these views overlook the context of the passage. While it's true that giving was a way that Luke establishes a contrast, I believe the contrast that Luke is actually trying to make is that he's trying to bring a distinction between two different hearts and the way that they gave, like that he's more interested in the heart behind the giving and not actually the giving itself. I think we actually find ourselves in error in, in understanding the passage because we think it's actually about get it, giving. I think it's about the heart. We noted at the end of chapter 4, which is why we recapped it, that Luke, in the flow of the text, was discussing the clear manifestations of what? Of the filling of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer boldness, unity, generosity. And while Barnabas was a perfect example of a spirit-filled believer, we're never told that this was the case with Ananias and Sapphira. In actuality, in diagnosing the core problem, Peter observes the contrary. So you've got Barnabas filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what does Peter say about Ananias? Right from the beginning. Why has Satan filled your heart? And I believe the distinction that Luke is bringing to light was that in contrast to Barnabas, this prototype of the spirit-filled life, that there were some within the church at this time that were masquerading as believers, crime of hypocrisy, but who were in actuality nothing more than the tools of the enemy, of Satan. Think about it this way. Over the last four chapters, we have seen the church experience incredible growth, right? Acts 2, 
3,000 are added to the original 120 at the day of Pentecost. And then only a chapter later, following Peter's second sermon, another 5,000 are added to their ranks. Jesus was clearly at work. He was working through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was generating ripples throughout Jerusalem. And then you have Barnabas, who served to illustrate that this work was not simply limited to a few or the apostles, but was for all of these believers who were being filled with the transformation power of the Holy Spirit. And while what was taking place in Jerusalem was incredible, you might even say revolutionary in its own right, the work of God would not go unopposed for very long. It's been said that Satan only attacks those in whom he feels threatened by. And that's true. That should be an encouragement to you because if you feel like you're under attack, all that means is you're doing something right that Satan feels threatened by. But this concept was none truer than how Satan strategically went after this early church. I mean, we've already seen that Satan's initial strategy when it came to opposing this work of Jesus through the church was through intimidation. In order to squelch what was happening, in the first part of chapter 4, we saw how the religious leaders, the religious establishment, severely threatened Peter and John to no longer speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. And not only did Peter and John, right from the beginning, refuse to cave to their demands, but then in response to the new filling of the Spirit that came in verse 31, Luke tells us that they all spoke the Word of God with boldness. It was clear, intimidating the church, wasn't going to work, which is why, as we now enter chapter 5, Luke presents the story of Ananias and Sapphira to illustrate, I believe that Satan has now shifted to a new strategy and his attempts to derail the work that Jesus was doing. He begins with intimidation. It doesn't work. So now it will be infiltration. And to me, This makes and provides a much better explanation as to why God dealt so swiftly, deliberately, and publicly with Ananias and Sapphira. God intervened in such a dramatic way to preserve the integrity of his work from the corrosive infiltration, not influence, of the enemy. Their hearts had been filled with Satan and as demonstrated by their own actions. These two, Ananias and Sapphira, had not experienced the same transformation that Barnabas had enjoyed through the Spirit. They're not interested in giving to care for the needs of the church. They wanted to give. Why? So that they might gain influence within the church. They wanted attention. They wanted to be equated as being the same kind of a person as Barnabas. And I believe that this story, it shows us that God that he was not correcting the behavior of believers or trying to set a precedent for how he would handle hypocrisy, but rather the story of Ananias and Sapphira was about God protecting the church from non-believers seeking to infiltrate the ranks. I agree that with revelation comes greater responsibility, and it's true that God deals with those outside of the church much differently than he does those within. But isn't it also true that when dealing with outsiders pitted against his bride, 
that he also deals with those people much differently than just the bystander? I think so. You see, not only does this idea that God would intervene when there was a clear and present danger presented to his people, this fresh work, but I think it's more consistent with the narrative, the context that Luke is presenting, but also more consistent with the heart of God and the precedents that we find established in the Old Testament. To me, this is way more consistent that God would strike dead anyone shocking, but that God would strike down non-believers who are trying to infiltrate and destroy his people. Well, we find all kinds of examples of that. The flood, how God handled the Canaanites. See, I don't think Achan applies at all. You should also note that in dealing with Achan, because it was dealing with someone inside the camp, that God didn't directly strike down Achan, did he? No, he actually had the children of Israel enact and carry out the punishment. To me, it's a better example of church discipline than uh, than anything else. Sin caught by God, and then God entrusts the people to handle it. But that's not what we find here, do we? What we find here, if it was in consistency with Achan, it would be like the sin's revealed, Peter recognizes it, now the church has to deal with it. But no, God dealt with it, didn't he? Which fits way more with other Old Testament types. And to further validate this point, look directly at the immediate results of this deliberate intervention of God protecting his church from satanic infiltration. Verse 11, so what happened? Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. But note, yet none of the rest dared join them but the people esteemed them highly. See, there's two results. First, great fear came upon all the church. (laughs) It's an inescapable reality that God's handling of Ananias and Sapphira had produced a healthy fear within the church. They understood anew what the stakes were, that the stakes were high when it came to sin, when it came to obedience, when it came to holiness and purity and the like. And they were also aware that God was willing to protect them from the infiltration of the enemy. Isn't that fitting? The end of chapter four, in in response to the intimidation, God fills them with power. But now in response to the infiltration of the enemy, God makes it clear, I'll fill you for this attack and I will protect you here. And don't we serve a God who will protect his own? That isn't he our shepherd? Won't he take care of our needs? Absolutely. You know, if there's anything that this story should warn against, this might be controversial, but take it with a grain of salt. It's against unbelievers playing church. If you're not a Christian and you've been coming to Calvary 316, putting up a facade, putting on a mask, playing a role that you're not actually, that you're playing a Christian, when you know full well you're not actually one, for whatever the motivation, for whatever the reason, this story should be a warning that I wouldn't do that much longer. It's, it's reality. You see, the church is a very dangerous place for an unrepentant sinner who is seeking to infiltrate the ranks by presenting themselves as something they're not. 
whether the church has to deal with that person or God will deal with them directly. I've seen it happen both ways. But God will protect his own. But note the other reaction here. Yet none of the rest. So he's talking about believers. So who's he referring to? Everyone else in Jerusalem dared not join them. Like what happened here was like the greatest slowdown of church growth, right? And, and why was this? Well, the people esteemed them highly. And while it's true that God wanted future generations of believers to understand the priority that he places on purity and integrity, I am convinced the lesson in this story wasn't just for the people that were there, but it was to communicate someone, something to the people out there. That what? That you will not mess with the church. You see, the holiness of the church, the reality that following Jesus was a serious endeavor, the fact that God would actively protect his people, what had it done to the outsiders? It had fostered an environment where unbelievers if they weren't going to join in sincerity, they stayed away in reverence because they recognized that something holy and real and supernatural was happening in that place. You're either going to respond to it and join and change or you're running. I'll close with this because I think it illustrates the idea. I'm an admirer of Mark Driscoll. Not theologically. I, I, I'm not reformed in any way, but I think he speaks in boldness, and I, and I admire the work that God's done through his church in Seattle. Well, my father uh, was in Seattle, had a Saturday night that was free, decided that he was going to go check out Mars Hill. And as he's driving away, because my dad has no bearing on directions whatsoever, and at the time he's trying to figure out his iPhone, so he's struggling with Google Maps, he gets lost, and he's trying to find this gigantic church. And he ends up pulling into the parking lot of a bar. And out comes walking this burly, kind of crazy-looking guy. And my dad rolls down the window and says, yo, I'm trying to, I'm lost, I'm looking for directions. And the guy's like, well, where do you want to go? And he goes, well, I want to go to Mars Hill. You know that church, Mark Driscoll pastors? And the guy was like, why do you want to go there? And my dad was like, well, I'm a pastor, and I just kind of admire the work, and I want to go check it out. And he was like, well, here's the directions, but I wouldn't go there. And my dad's like, well, why not? And he goes, that place freaks me out, man. I'm scared of that place. I drive around the block. I'll stay away. My dad was like, well, why? He goes, man, I had a whole bunch of friends that they went into that place, and they came out totally different people. <laughs> and I'm not down with that. And, and you know what? I like my life the way it is, and I don't want nothing to change that place freaks me out. Like, to me, I, my dad was telling me this story, and he was like, that told me everything I needed to know about that church. Because it had done two things. Lives were being transformed. But people that were not interested in that stayed away. And you know, at Calvary 316, the church's purpose is to equip saints for the ministry. So if you come and you're not a believer, we want you to to become one very quickly. Don't, don't fake it. There's no need to be a hypocrite. Be real, be honest, take some time. But when it's all said and done, if Jesus is not for you, then get out. So Father, we'll leave it with that word.